If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2.28. We're going to be reading 2.28 through 3.3, and I'm going to ask up Megan Caston. Would you make your way on up as you turn? And that's 1 John 2.28 through 3.3. Please stand for the reading of God's word. First John 2:28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him and in his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born in of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. When uh, he was uh, sharing about the situation in Colombia and Venezuela, we should, we should pray about that. There's got to be a lot of boys and girls there that are um, afraid and what a mess. So let's pray. God, we are thinking right now about uh, the situation in Venezuela and the um, economic turmoil, political turmoil, and uh, just the instability in that country. And God, we're thinking about uh, the borders with Colombia and people that are fleeing the country and trying to get out and uh, what a catastrophe it is. And Lord, we know also that you're a powerful and mighty God and that you're not surprised by what's going on in Venezuela and you're not lacking resources. You're not wrenching your hands together trying to figure out what to do. Uh, Lord, we know that your church is present in Venezuela. There's believers there, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we pray for them and we pray that you would be using your church to bring good news in a time when I'm sure people are asking big questions. And Lord, we know that you work all things together for good. So we ask that you would take this situation that is so bleak and uh, abysmal and do what you do best and redeem it for your good purposes. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I should first thank uh, Grace for the support that you've given to our ministry over the years. If you don't know who I am, if you're visiting the church, um, I'm the, I work for Every Generation Ministries, and we help churches around the world work with children. And we have uh, work currently in 15 countries, and we're about to start working in Kenya and Russia in the near future. Uh, very excited about last year because we started working in India, which was one of my lifelong dreams. And uh, India is a really important country in the world when it comes to children because about one out of four children, it's amazing still when I say it, it's 22%, almost one out of four children in the whole world live in India. Isn't that extraordinary? Amazing place. So if you're a child lover like I am, India is a really important place. And when you go there, you see it. There's children everywhere in that country. And, of course, so many of them don't know that God loves them and that Jesus has a life for them. And so pray for our ministry there. And thank you so much for the support that you've given to EGM over all the years. Uh, Dave called me a few weeks ago and asked me if I would uh, share with you today. And he told me I could preach about anything I wanted to or um, he would assign me a passage in the series you're working on in 1 John. So I told him that I like to preach in the series with them and whoever else has been speaking. And so he assigned this passage to me and he kind of threw me a softball, so to speak, because the, I'm sure you've uh, 
if you've been here at the church, the teaching before this passage is pretty tough. And I have bad news for you. It's going to get tough again uh, next week. <laughs> a, lot of really, a lot of really challenging teaching in 1 John. The passage that he gave me, though, is uh, a beautiful, I think Dave called it an oasis in the uh, desert of John's teaching that can be so uh, hard on us. And so I want us to look at First John 2.28 through 3.3. 3. And I want us to look at um, three things in the passage. Oh, wait, before I forgot to tell you the most important thing. Oh, man, I almost blew it. That's why you write stuff down, you know? Okay, our ministry is going great, but we have a uh, very exciting development that actually goes back to before um, we started EGM. Before I um, started Every Generation Ministries, I worked here in Orange County as a children's pastor, and I worked at a church 35 years ago that had a woman in the church who had a real heart for special needs children. And she started a program that ran Monday through Friday at the church for preschool children. And the idea was that at the end of the three-year program, they might be able to go into a kindergarten and be mainstreamed into a kindergarten. And our daughter was involved in that. And we had all that equipment set up at the church. So they started a Sunday morning program for children that had special needs. And I remember families coming to our church from 50 miles away because it was the only church anywhere near here that had anything for children like that. I remember one time a mom and her husband came and they had quite a few kids that had lots of challenges. She dropped them off in the program and then she started crying. And the lady, I was like 20... I was young, 22, 23, 21, something like that. And the lady that was in charge of the program asked her, why are you crying? Is everything okay? And she said, I feel so guilty because I'm so happy to drop my children off. And I'd never seen that before. Her life was so burdened, her and her husband's, that the opportunity to have somebody love their children in the church and teach them something for an hour and a half, she was so happy to go to church and worship and just be in a church service. She was in tears because she felt so guilty about the freedom she felt and joy. Ever since then, I've had a heart. You know, in a lot of the countries we serve in, I've had a heart for special needs children because a lot of the countries we serve in, I know it's hard for you to believe this, about half the churches don't have any ministry to children at all, none. No Sunday school, no nothing. So inside that, you have like a special category of children who have special needs that are just completely ignored in so many communities. So... Um, Marla and I have known Tom and Nancy Wilson forever, and Nancy worked in the Unified School, Irvine Unified School District and started their first autism programs in Irvine, worked there for over 20 years. And she has retired from that and is joining our staff to help EGM work with our teams and churches around the world to develop a ministry to children who have special needs. And we're like really stoked about that. It's really exciting. Yes, you can clap for you. So at today, today at 12.15, we're going to have a luncheon where we can like explain a little more about that, and we'd love to have you come. I think there's food for, I don't know, 300 people or something, um, and it's in the living room, which I think seats about that many people. So we would love to have you come, and Nancy's going to share about the ministry, and, and you can learn how you can be part of that. Um, I believe that God's love for children like that must be like at the very core of his heart. I really believe that, and we're really excited about that. All right. Whew, I'm glad I didn't forget that. First John 2, 28 uh, through 3, 3. I'm going to look at three things in the passage, and uh, I'm going to tell you what they are now so you can kind of track along with me. The first one is I want to um, look at this idea of the family of God. When you look at the passage, there's lots of family terms, which is completely consistent with the New Testament. I want us to look at that and see what that's about. I want us to look at the love of God, which is mentioned right in the middle in chapter 3, verse 1. And then I want us to look at this idea, of course, the children of God, which he mentions twice in the first three verses of chapter 3. So I want us to look at the family of God, the love of God, and the children of God. And I want us to see what we can learn from that and how it might be able to help us as a church here. So, um, if you look in the uh, verses that we read previously, I want you to note in verse 29 of, uh, verse 28 of chapter 2, 
he addresses them, and now, dear children. So that's John addressing the reader, the listener, and he's addressing them as children, which means he must have some, like, paternal relationship with them. It's a family term, right, children? Paul, uh, John must see himself in some role like that with them. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, he refers to the Father in reference to God. And so there's another family term. God is uh, viewed by John as our Father. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says that we're called children of God, another family term. And then in verse 2, it says, dear friends, now we are children of God. And it's another family term. And then if you look up in chapter 2, verse 29, he says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And when we think born of him, we think of being born again, a sort of spiritual renewal. But I wanted to suggest in the first century, they also certainly would have thought about birth into a family. That's how you enter into a family is by birth. So in some ways, it's another familial term. And I wanted to remind you that throughout the New Testament, the family terms are used often. Paul writes to sisters and brothers. He refers to the church as the household of God, children of God, our Father. And there's family terms that are used, and it's really important for us to understand why that is and what they mean when they say that. So I want us to look in two passages that I think will help us. One of them, if you, we're going to move around in the Bible quite a bit this morning, so uh, be prepared. Matthew chapter 12. It's when Jesus speaks about family, brothers, sisters, and what that's all about. And he does it in a way that redefines, in some ways, what family is in the kingdom of God. So Matthew chapter 12, <coughs> verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mothers and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So we tend to define our families in terms of uh, genetics, uh, genealogies, birthings, procreation. This is what a family is about. Jesus says here that my family members are the people who do the will of my Father in heaven. There's some spiritual uh, criteria for family membership it's not about, are you related to the person by blood? It's what do you believe particularly about our God in heaven? And what do you believe about Jesus? And it's that belief that determines whether, you're not, whether or not you're part of the family. And then Paul says this explicitly in Galatians chapter 3, if you turn over there. In verse 26 of chapter 3. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So we're children of God by believing, having faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ... Then you are Abraham's, in the Greek it's sperma, in Abraham's seed, his family, and heirs according to the promises. So to be a member of God's family, it's by faith in Christ about what you believe in God. It's not by birthright. So when we ask the question, why does God speak about himself as a father, why do Paul, John, Peter use terms like brother and sister? Why do they use the term children of God? Let me suggest that they are redefining family in terms of the community of Christ followers 
and they have three ideas that we can learn from this morning. The first one is, if you're a member of a family, it determines to some degree what your identity is, who you are. I'm a Watts, and Wattses work hard. My dad taught me that we work hard, and you'll still hear people refer to me as the Duracell bunny. <laughs> Just keeps on going. And it's because that's who the Watts family members are. My wife has an identity like that. Marla has a grandmother, Vincent, long since gone to be with the Lord, but she was something. She was a farmer with her husband in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowls, smallpox plagues. She had 10 children. All of them were born in dirt floor hovels in Oklahoma. There's pictures of Grandma Vincent in the cotton fields, picking cotton with a bag, bent over, working hard with a baby tied on her back. The woman was a legend. <laughs> Marla's mother was a Vincent woman, one of the strongest women I ever met in my entire life. And I can assure you that Marla will definitely let me know what she thinks about things. <laughs> and the fruit did not fall far from our tree with the daughter, Brittany. <laughs> well, Brittany's something else. Um, in our family, we speak of the Vincent women in hushed tones. <laughs> it's an identity. And families help determine who we are. The second reason I think John uses these family terms is values. Families teach you what's important, what the priorities are, what your worldview is, and good families instill values, especially in their children. So one of the reasons that John uses the family term is because the family of God is a place where values are instilled. And then the third reason that I think he uses the family term is relational intimacy. Families are where you find the people you can talk to. It's where your closest relationships are. It's the people you can be vulnerable with. It's the people you can count on are in your family. And this is how John describes the community around Ephesus that he writes to. You are a family of God. Being a Christian means being part of a family. It's where our identity is found, our real identity, our values, and it's where we have relational intimacy it's the church, your church, that's the family of God for you in this community. And I wanted to suggest this morning very graciously that over the last 50 years, evangelical Christianity in the United States has reduced Christianity to, how do I know I won't go to hell when I die? And that's what Christianity is about. Or to put it positively, how can I be sure I'll go to heaven when I die? And if you have a good answer to that, you're a Christian. I wanted to suggest that that is not exactly true. Christianity is about that, but it's about being part of God's family, a community of believers. And let me try, Marla always says I need to be practical about this stuff, so let me give it to you. Right, Grace Fellowship Church is made up of people here, and you should be like a big family. You shouldn't just show up here on Sunday and hang out and leave. It's where your identity should be. You should be involved in Bible studies here, hanging out with people in this church, building relationships with them. It's where you should find your identity should be teaching Sunday school. Everybody should go teach in the children's ministry for sure. 
It's where you learn how to do things right. It's your community. To put it in the modern jargon, these are your peeps right here. And you should build your community right here. This is your family. And it's, we're going to talk later about it. It's not just for your sake either. But this is the, the good news is we do go to heaven when we die and we're part of God's family right now. I learned that when I was starting EGM. I, I found out if you're the president of an organization or you're the, you know, the guy in charge, it means you're the last guy to get paid. And we had a situation where we just you know, ran out of money. I think we had 14 people working for EGM at that time, and some of them had wives, kids, you know, and you're not, you're not got to pay them. And well, when we paid everybody and the rent and all that, we were out of money. So I didn't get paid. So I went a whole month with no pay, and then uh, same thing happened the next month. And uh, so we didn't get paid for two months, so that was not good. And uh, so I called my brother in the United States, and I asked him if he could send me some money because, you know, we needed some money. And uh, then I came back about three months after that all started. I think I went about two or three months with no pay. And I came to a board meeting, and uh, the board asked about the financial statements, and they were not happy because they were sharp guys. They knew ahead of time that what was wrong. And they uh, found out that I hadn't been paid. And they asked me, well, what, what, you just decided not to pay yourself? And they weren't mad at me for that. What they were mad at me about was that I never said anything to them. They were like deeply wounded, like relationally wounded, that I would like betray our relationship and not tell them that I didn't have money to get paid. And they were like, we're your family, and you never said anything to us. And I remember thinking, no, my family's my brother Timothy. But that's not true. What's true is, I mean, Tim, I love my brother, but what's true is your family is the people of God. And my brother's a member of that family because he loves Christ. And I learned that being in a relationship with Christ means you're in a relationship with other Christians and we're family together. So the first idea I have for us this morning is we are in the family of God and we should live in that. Well, he goes on in chapter 3, verse 1 and says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. And, uh, well, I want us to just stop here and spend some time because it's such a beautiful, this is where, you know, Dave threw me the softball. <laughs> uh, some of the versions translate it, the great love of God. Others say, behold, this is a famous translation, behold what manner of love God has lavished on us. The translators are trying to qualify and characterize the love of God because it's not just a regular love. It's a magnificent love. And I wanted, when I first read this, I thought I should go, I'm going to go look first. I mean, you got to go right to 1 Corinthians, right? The love chapter and see what love means and all that. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that because I want to look and see what John means in 1 John in particular when he says the love of God. What does he mean? And I discovered that John in 1 John and in the Gospel of John, and just it's my assumption that he wrote them both, is the, the man who writes about the love of God. In 1 John alone, he mentions the love, love 35 times in 24 verses. In some ways, the love of God is like at the center of John's understanding of who God is. And we need to look and see what does he mean when he says, the lavish love of God has been poured out to us. And there's a lot of those 35 times where he's talking about love between us in the church, brothers and sisters. But there's a few times where he says, here's what love is, just period. And I want us to look at those because I think it will really help us understand what the love of God is about. So the first one is in 1 John 3.18. We're going to jump around here in 1 John, so get ready. Uh, 3.18, he writes, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So the first thing we're going to note is the lavish love of God is not just talk. God doesn't just say he loves us. Love is an action that God takes in truth, and that should be characteristic of our relationships with each other in the family of God, that we don't just love in word, but we love in action. 
Then the second thing he says is in 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Okay, when you read that, you gotta be thinking something big's about to be said, right? He's given, here it is. I'm gonna give you like a definition of love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's about sacrifice. Love is about sacrifice. God's action isn't just any kind of action. It's his sacrificial action on our part. And then he goes on and clarifies that in chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 10. Turn over there. page over. He says, this is love. Do you see that in chapter, 10, uh, chapter 4, verse 10? Here we go again. This is love. Get ready. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The second quality of God's lavish love is he sacrifices and he gave his life in atonement for us. He died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. This is the lavish love of God. And then he goes on in 1 John 4, 9, just previous to that. You ready? This is how God showed his love among us. Here we go again. Definition of love. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Not only did he make it possible for forgiveness of sins, he's given us a new life that we live. Do you see that? We live that life through Jesus Christ. The good news is not just that we go to heaven when we die. It's that right now we can start experiencing the life Christ has for us. And then the last thing is in 1 John 4, 18, very famous passage. He writes in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I thought about this a lot over the last couple of weeks. Fear is such a big part of the world we live in. When you watch television or the media, they make us afraid about our finances. You know, what if you don't have the best wealth manager? You could just get another one. The fees are too high and all that. Fear about finances is big. Fear about our health, how our bodies are going to function as we get older, disease. Fear about our jobs. What if I lose my job? What about my career? What am I older? And fear's big. Politics lives on fear. If you watch the cable news networks, they'll have you convinced that everything's falling apart everywhere, and we should all be afraid. If you're someone like me that's a little older, I mean, not as old as Pastor Zellner said, but... Um, <laughs> I worry about my older parents. Dad's 92, mom's 87. They've been married for 69 years. Sometimes dad doesn't know who mom is. Um, I worry about that. I'm going to get afraid. Uh, we have wayward children. I know a lot of you in the room here that are older have children that aren't walking with Christ and we're afraid about what's going to happen. We have grandchildren, and you think, oh, my gosh, I can't believe people are raising children in this world today, right? You ever had that feeling? Those of you who are my age, my, my parents thought the same thing, too, but it's all fear. And John says that the love of God, the lavish love of God, drives out all fear. The future is certain. God is in control. And he is a loving God, and there is no reason to fear. Well, when we think about the lavish love of God, and I think about your church, I get concerned. Some of you, many of you, have known Jesus Christ for a long time, many of you for decades. He's familiar to you. You know who Jesus is. 
And things that are familiar are things that we take for granted. And that's what concerns me. I've told this story here before, but it illustrates the issue so clearly. I was in Siberia in the, it's been years ago. A team went from our church in Poland and we were um, doing some children's ministry training stuff there and it was a really bad situation. It was a little village called Ust Barguzin on the Lake Baikal. Unemployment was, I don't know, 75% or something. The family that I lived with, he had a job making, I think it was $16 a, a month. Can you believe that? Wife and two kids, beautiful kids. They, they, it's so cold there that it would get down to 40, 50 below zero. They had no running water, so the wells would all freeze. And if you didn't have the water inside your house, then you couldn't get water. Uh, they, I remember I was there one evening, it was raining, and the lady asked me if I wanted tea, hot tea. It was kind of chilly. This was like in June. And uh, I said yes, and she opened the window in the kitchen and put her teapot out, and the water's running off the roof into the teapot. <laughs> she brought it back in, heated it up, and made some tea. And the tea came from stuff they got out of the forest. I don't even know what that was. <laughs> and it was bleak. So I'd been there like five days. I felt so sorry for them. And they had these two little beautiful girls that were the same age as Brittany at the time. And so I was there at the end of the trip, and I wanted to say thank you to them because they had hosted me, and here's this poor family. And I remember they gave me gifts to take home to the kids. They gave me like two pencils for my children. They were like half-used and sharp, but they gave them to take back to your children and stuff. It was just really something. So I snuck out of the house. My Russian's like not, you know, it's okay, I guess, sort of. And I went to this grocery store, and um, there were four of them, right? The mom, dad, and the two girls. So I got four oranges or five oranges, uh, five bananas, five apples, and a piece of watermelon. And it was all horrible. You know, like bruised fruit. The bananas were kind of brown on them. And they would have never sold them anywhere in the U.S. in a store. But I bought them, and... I put it all they had. I put them in a bag, and I took them back to the house, and I came in, and I put them out on the table and said, we're going to have a celebration when I leave, International Fruit Festival. And uh, the girls went running out of the house. You would have thought that I had bought them a brand-new Mercedes. They went running to get their dad. It was, it was, it was sort of, I was just a tragic almost. So the mom is washing the bananas and the oranges in the sink. Like, who washes bananas and oranges? You know, but it was like this special deal, right? And, so they get them out on the table, and we're sitting there, and she quarters the oranges and hands a quarter to the two girls, and one to dad and one to her. She puts it, the mom puts it in her mouth, and she starts to bite down on the orange, and she starts smiling, and there's like orange juice stuff running down, and she starts crying while she's smiling. I'd never seen that before. I look over at the two girls. They've got the, they look like orange mouthpieces in the NFL, you know, the orange thing. They're crying. Oh, they're eating their orange, smiling, crying. <laughs> I look over, the dad was this huge, burly. He'd been a policeman. He had like a man, handlebar mustache. Like, just like you'd picture a Russian dude. And he's got big tears in his eyes, looking at his wife and two girls. I, was, I just felt like so much pity. And this is horrible, right? Okay, so a few times in my life, I, f I felt like God spoke to me almost audibly. And this was one of them. I just heard in my heart, Daniel, do not feel sorry for those people. You should feel sorry for yourself and all your friends because they have something you don't have. Thankfulness. I mean, how many of us woke up this morning and said, wow, I'm so thankful I have 10 fingers. Probably not a soul in this room. How many of you woke up today and thought, I can see how many of you woke up and thought, I'm sleeping in a bed with sheets on it, and it's like comfortable in a house with a roof over it, and there's no gunfire outside and no howitzers being shot off? How many of you are thankful that you don't have stacks of dollar bills that are worthless, like we just saw? We go through life with so much to be thankful for that we take for granted. When I came back from Siberia and I was um, traveling all the way home, I remember when it dawned on me that the things that you're not thankful for are the things that are familiar to you, right? The reason I'm not thankful for my 10 fingers is because they just take them for granted. And then I realized that's how I am with Jesus. God, forgive me. He's become like an old shoe. And the lavish love of God is just the lavish love of God. 
So I'd like us not to live that way and be thankful for the lavish love of God that's been poured out for us. Can we do that? All right, the last thing is I'd, uh, I want us to look at what he means when he says the children of God. When you've, I've lived 35 years, I've worked with children, I love children, and so we got to look at that and see what he means when he says that. And I want to, I want to look at it two ways. One of them is going to be like a children's worker, and the other one's not going to be like a children's worker. And I'll start with the not like a children's worker first. So when he says children of God, uh, we need to see what John means. And if you believe that he wrote uh, the Gospel of John, also, then I want you to look with me back in John chapter one. Um, 12 and 13, where he uses this term and tells us exactly what he means. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what he's saying in that first phrase is when you receive Jesus, when you believe in his name, God calls us a child of his. Then, he says, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So when he says that we're born by faith in Jesus Christ and declared a child of God, he says that's in contrast to those who think that you might be a child of God by natural descent or a human decision or a husband's will. And what I wanted to suggest this morning, this is really important, is that you are a member of God's people in the first century before Jesus by being Jewish. No exceptions. You're born into the people of God. You have to come from a Jewish family. You have to have a mother who's Jewish. You have to be birthed into the people of God ethnically, genealogically, It's about procreation and our people. Now, Jesus may be the Messiah, and that's all great, and we need to follow him, but we means Jewish people. And John and Peter and Paul in particular see that Jesus has turned all of that upside down. And being Jewish is great, but... The only way to be a member of God's family and to be a child of God is by faith in Christ alone. Nothing else qualifies you. And therefore, you're a child of God by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. And that is in contrast to the people of God being defined as those who are Jewish. And that's really important for us, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Let me say it to you this way. You're not a child of God by natural descent or genealogy. You are not a child of God because your parents went to church. You're not a child of God because your parents were Christians. You're not right with God because you were circumcised. And you're not right with God because you were baptized. You're not right with God because you give some money in the offering. Or you come to church on Christmas and Easter. You are right with God and a child of God only by faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that's what he means when he says, you're children of God. It's solely based on personal faith in Christ. And let me say he says that for three reasons. The first one is, for a child of God, it means God's our father, and in good families, 
fathers love, care for, and protect their children. And we can expect that from God. He loves you, he wants to care for you, and he wants to protect you. In the family of God, the children are from Uganda, Kenya, Newport Beach, Costa Mesa, Temecula. Some of them have PhDs, some of them cannot read and write. Some of them are multi-billionaires, and some of them are making a dollar a day. And we're all in the family of God, where God cares for us, loves us, and wants to protect us. That's what a father does. He takes care of his one family. Dads protect their children. When I was a little boy, um, I, I couldn't play basketball, or f I was too short in football, I would have been killed. And so, <laughs> it's true. So I played hockey. Hockey was good. And uh, we were living in the Midwest, and I was playing hockey, and someone threw a hockey stick in front of me, trying to, like, you know, check me, but they lost control of the stick, and I ran over it, and I went face down, boom, right on the ice, and I broke off both my front teeth. Pretty high up, too. It was really bad. And uh, so Dad got me in. They took me to the dentist immediately. Really, it was nasty. But, you know, hockey, have you ever noticed hockey players? They have a lot of teeth gone. It's just the way they are, you know. And I know why. <laughs> so we go to the dentist, and the dentist has got me in the chair. You know, I remember my dad standing next to me. My dad's like a tough guy. And, uh, you know, he taught us to try and be tough, too, and all that. And so dad's standing right next to me. And the dentist gets up there, and he's got some little zzz thing, you know. And when I was telling this story in the first service, Dr. Gunlock was sitting right down there going, oh, no, another dental story, you know. Jeez. And the guy's got that little zzz thing, you know, going, and he touched that tooth, and I just about leaped out of the, you know, there was like nerve, and I like leaped out of the chair, you know, and, and he goes, did that hurt? <laughs> and my dad was standing next to me, and he said, if my boy jumps like that, it hurt. You better not hurt him again. You know, the dentist's like, whoa, you know. The <laughs> That's what dads do, right? They protect their children. They want to care for them. And when he says we're children of God, he means that. He's our father. And he wants to care for us and love us and protect us, just like my dad did in that moment. Okay, and the second thing is, this is, um, this is why this child of God thing, I think, is so huge in the Bible. I have to say it. Okay, when he says in Galatians 3 that by faith you're a child of God and you're in the family of Abraham, what he means is, is that when the world had gone completely rebellious, he calls Abraham and his family and tells them, I'm going to redeem this world through you and your family. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. You are going to be a blessing to the nations, and I'm going to redeem the world through you all. Well, then when we read the New Te Old Testament, we find out that they become part of the problem. Instead of redeeming the world and living the life God intends, they become part of the problem that God's trying to deal with. He sends his son and says, I'm making a new family of Abraham based on faith in Christ alone. And for what purpose? The very purpose he promised Abraham, to bless the nations and redeem the world around us. His purpose is to bring good news to a lost world and restore the creation's right relationship with him through the family of Abraham, which is now you, you're the children of God. Grace Fellowship Church is God's family in this community. And it's not so that you can be happy in the family. We have such a huge problem with narcissism in our world. It's about God wanting to work through this church in this community. And bring the love of God to the people around you. To live like God's family so people see what God's intention is for his creation. Did you ever wonder why Paul, John, Peter, nobody ever says, here's how you share the message of salvation on the street corner. You say this, 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 this. Never. 
You read the letters, they're all about family life. That's what, the, that's what 1 John's all about, is how to live as the family of God and present the good news to the world around us. The reason we're children of God is we have a purpose to be part of God's family, loving the world around us. Do you all see that so clearly? And then finally, it means, I didn't like this part, but can't get away from it. If you look up child of God in the Bible, it's going to go straight to Hebrews chapter 12, just so you know. Check it out in a concordance. And it's where it talks about discipline. The reason it's not my favorite subject is when I was little, I was the subject of a lot of this discipline. <laughs> There's a, one statement in here I'll point out when we get to it that I really don't know is really true. But anyway, um, chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 7 and 11, and he talks about children of God and he talks about discipline. So he writes, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. I was super legitimate. <laughs> not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us this is the part I'm not sure I agree with. And we respected them for it. <laughs> I'll just take it by faith, I guess, that that's true. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So let me just make this clear. When God disciplines us, he's trying to help us experience the consequences of our actions, but he is not punishing us. If you believe that God is still punishing you as a Christian, then you don't understand the atonement he died for my sins. He atoned for my sins. I've received forgiveness of sins, and I have nothing left to pay. However, God allows consequences to come into my life, and he wants to train me in righteousness so that I can be part of his redemptive work in this world. Discipline is part of the Christian life, and it's part of what it means to be a child of God. When I was a little boy, there were five of us living in the home. And my parents had some rules. One of them was we could not play football in the house. We didn't feel that was reasonable. Uh, well, we did feel it was reasonable when dad was home. But mom and dad went out on like a date night. And when they left, we decided to play football. And uh, I believe my sister went down and out, and my brother threw a beautiful spiral, which she mishandled, and <laughs> it hit the lamp on the coffee table, mom's favorite lamp, and it was toast. Lamp pieces everywhere. So we gathered all the lamp up, and we put it on the table. And this was before Watergate, those of you who are older. We knew about stonewalling before that. We decided we're all going to deny any knowledge of the lamp. <laughs> and therefore, dad and mom will not be able to do anything. And yes, we rule. So we were milling around in the house. About 30 minutes after they got home, dad found the lamp. And called, you know, I don't know if you all did this, but there was five of us. He would start with the oldest down to the youngest yelling our names. Steve, Tim, and it was like the sound of music. We all ran out and lined up. Steve, Tim, Lisa, me, and Julie. And dad goes, what happened to the lamp? And you know, we're all like, Steve said, I don't know. Tim, I don't know. Lisa, I don't know. I said, I don't know. My little sister was little. She was, I don't know. And dad did not even hesitate and said, fine. I'm spanking all five of you. I remember we all like looked at each other like, what? He said, one of you for breaking the lamp and the other four for lying. 
He grabs my little sister. She's only 18 months younger than I am. Right? She grabbed, and I was a wimp. My whole goal in life was to protect my little sister. And I was like a wimp, but a little boy, I was like, get all emotional about stuff and stuff. He grabs my sister and goes, You're first. And I said, Tim did it. <laughs> I bet that whole thing went down in like 30 seconds. We all look back and think our dad was awesome, right? Who would I would have never thought of that. Four for lying and one for breaking the lamp. <laughs> I remember we sat down in the front room and he was on the couch. We were all on the floor. Nobody got spanked. And he talked to us about lying. Talked to us about breaking mom's favorite lamp, obeying the rules in the house. And we had a time of discipline, but nobody got spanked. But that's the way discipline is with God. He's not punishing us. He's done that. Christ has died for my sins, and I receive forgiveness. He just wants me to live the life that he intends for me. All right, well, we've looked at being a member of God's family. We have reminded ourselves how important the lavish love of God is. And now we've been reminded that we're children of God. God's our Father. He loves us, cares for us, protects us gives us purpose in life, and disciplines us. And for that, we can be thankful. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your great lavish love. And we are so thankful that we can be a part of a family. And God, when I think of the boys and girls around the world that don't have dads, moms, children that have never experienced the unconditional love of God in a family, I Pray that you would stir up your church and the boys and girls could experience what we've talked about today, that you love them and you want them to be part of your family and you have a purpose for their life and your love is lavish. And God, I pray that we could respond to that in our hearts today and we are so thankful that you love us and care for us and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.